I would ask that you turn in your Bibles today to our text, which comes from the Gospel of Mark, as we'll be looking at chapter 6, and we will be going through verses 1 to 6 this morning. So Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. Hear with me then, brothers and sisters, the reading of God's Word. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter? the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. Thus far is the reading of God's Word. It seems like our natural reaction to not doing what is right is to make excuses for why we don't do what is right. We are constantly coming up with reasons and excuses to justify ourselves and our actions. And in fact, we see this from the very beginning of man himself. In Genesis chapter 3, as Adam and Eve eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the Lord says to Adam, have you ate of the fruit of this tree? What was Adam's response? Was it, yes, Lord. I did. I'm sorry. I seek your forgiveness. No. What Adam tried to do was pin it on the woman and even pin it on the Lord. Right? He tried to minimize what he did and he tried to say it was their fault for why this occurred. Right? In verse 12, he says, The woman who you gave me, she gave me the fruit. Right? He's throwing out all these reasons why the problem wasn't with him, but with them. And yet, Eve wasn't any better in this, was she? Right? Does she say, Lord, forgive me for my lack of belief in You? When the Lord asks her, what is this that You have done? Well, no. Eve doesn't take responsibility for her action either. But rather, she tries to pin it on the serpent. She said in verse 13, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And we're no different, are we, brothers and sisters? We are full of excuses. We are full of excuses. I'm sure that at least one of you here, when you were a child, you know, you didn't do your homework, you went to school, and you used the excuse, my dog ate my homework. There's got to be at least one of you who did that, right? But that's an excuse, right? If you grew up with siblings, or if you have children now, what happens usually... 
Uh, they get a little rough. You know, the, the young one usually comes to you and says, you know, is crying. Hey, the older one pushed me. And so you call the older one in and you say, why would you push your brother? And what do they say? Well, he pushed me first. So I was just defending myself. Right? All these excuses. And unfortunately, as we get older and as we age, we carry these excuses along with us, don't we? And then what's worse is we use them to justify far graver sin. Right? The spouse who leaves their partner right, uses the excuse for why they want to leave. Oh, you know, we were growing apart. Or this is what's best for the children. Right? Or people have excuses all the time for why they don't come to church or why they aren't members of churches. Right? You have Christians who, who used to profess Christ and who no longer profess Christ and they're full of excuses, aren't they? Well, I found inconsistencies in the Bible or science disproves the Bible. That's why I don't believe anymore. But when you think about it, brothers and sisters, there really isn't a greater act of self-harm that someone can do to themselves than to reject Christ. Right? There's no greater act of harm that can be done to yourself than to reject Christ because to reject Christ means choosing hell. It means choosing torment and choosing wrath outside of the loving presence of Christ forever for yourself. And there can be no worse punishment for us than that. And there's no excuse to reject Christ. Right? Especially there's no, there's no good excuse to reject Christ, is there? They're all bad excuses. Right? We live in a day and age where the gospel is accessible to almost anyone throughout the world. Right? You can just hop online and listen to sermons. You can search the internet to find answers to all of your theological questions. And there are churches almost everywhere. And yet people come up with excuses for why they do not believe. And in our text today, we'll see the many excuses that the people of Nazareth use for why they rejected Jesus. And yet they shouldn't have had any excuses. Because they had lived with Jesus for some 30 years. They've seen His perfect life. None of them in that city could point to a time where Jesus ever sinned against anyone or ever wronged one person. And now they are hearing what He is saying. And they've heard the reports of the works that He had done. And He has come home to preach and to demonstrate these works and to bless these people. And yet all they had was a bunch of reasons and excuses for why they rejected Christ. But you know what this teaches us, what this proves to us, is that we are nothing but fools by nature. We are fools by nature. We don't see and perceive what is right before our eyes because we believe that we are wise. But every person born suffers from this condition. And it's not, not only, it's not until subsequent to our regeneration, right, that we are made wise. This is what we're told in Proverbs chapter 1 verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 18.2. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding but only in expressing His opinion. And this is what we'll see in our text today. Those who should have known Jesus best did not value Him at all 
And in fact, were resentful that the Jesus they knew would claim to be the Messiah. And so we're going to look at our text today then under three points to unpack the reaction that Jesus received from the people of Nazareth that Mark lays out for us in our text today. And so point one will be astonishment. Astonishment. Point two will be offense taken. Offense taken. And point three will be unbelief. Unbelief. So point one, astonishment. So here we have to set the scene first. Jesus is in Capernaum. And now He has traveled back home to Nazareth. Remember, Jesus is born in Bethlehem, but He lives in Nazareth. We read in the opening chapters of Luke's Gospel that when the angel Gabriel comes to Mary to tell her that she will conceive and and bear Christ, that He visited her in Nazareth. And it's only because Caesar Augustus demands that a census be taken that Joseph and Mary are forced to leave Nazareth and go to Bethlehem that they might register in Joseph's ancestral home. Okay? And then we're told that while they're there, Mary has to conceive. And so she gives birth to Jesus in Bethlehem, but their home is in Nazareth. Right? This is why we're told, if you remember the story when Jesus is 12 years of age and they go to Jerusalem to, to celebrate the feast of the Passover and Mary and Joseph leave and they find out Jesus isn't with them, so they return to get Jesus and they come back home. We're told that they come back home to Nazareth. Okay, So Nazareth is Jesus' hometown. And it's because these people grew up with Jesus and knew Him throughout His life that they were astonished then by what's taking place. Because remember, Jesus' earthly ministry doesn't begin until He goes out into the wilderness and is baptized by John and the Holy Spirit descends upon Him. So Jesus leaves Nazareth not preaching, not teaching, not performing these miraculous deeds. And now He's returned doing all these things and the people are shocked. Right? They're shocked by it. Now, one author points out for us that Nazareth at this time is probably about 60 acres in size. You probably have about 500 residents in Nazareth. And so this is a very small town. And what do we know about small towns? Right? Everyone knows everybody and everyone knows everything about everybody, don't they? And yet, I'm sure Jesus is eager. He's excited to return home as probably any of us are if you've been away from the home you grew up in all your life. You know, it's, it's enjoyable when you go back sometimes, right? To see mom and dad, to see brothers and sisters, to see maybe other relatives you have who live in the area, to see your friends whom you grew up with. But sadly, when Christ returns, the people could not stand who Jesus turned out to be. And they didn't want anything to do with them. You think, though, as Jesus returned, that He would have received a hero's welcome, wouldn't you? You have to understand that Capernaum is only 20 miles from Nazareth. And so you can be sure that all of Jesus' works in that early ministry that He did in Capernaum would have gotten back to Nazareth by now. And you can be sure that everyone in Nazareth told each other about it. And it was fully known to everyone there. And so you think that when Jesus returned, He would have been received as a a hero. He would have had a, a hero's welcome. That someone from our small town is the one who is doing these great and mighty deeds and who is proclaiming with authority never heard before. 
But this only bred contentment and resentment for Christ. You see, people were astonished. They were. But their astonishment was because Jesus was the one doing it. It was because Jesus was the one doing it. It's not that, that good type of astonishment. Like, oh, we're so thrilled with who you've become and what you are doing. Right? We're so happy for you. We're so thankful that you've come back to share your message and your gifts now with us, the people of your hometown. No, their astonishment came from a very negative place. Right? As Jesus teaches in the synagogue, they say, wow, what wisdom. Right? They say, wow, what works. But it doesn't lead them to trust in Jesus. All that leads them to do is question, how in the world is He able to do this now? Where does this ability come from? Because this ain't the Jesus that we knew. It doesn't make them say to themselves that the source of His ability must be God. Right? It doesn't cause them to believe in the divinity of Christ or that He is the Messiah, but in fact, all it does is to serve to cause Him to make up excuses and reasons for why He couldn't be who He says He is. In fact, in John's Gospel, chapter 7, verse 5, what do we read? Jesus' own brothers at this time do not believe in Him. And yet, no one could deny His wisdom. No one could deny His works. But in denying that the source of the works was God, what they were saying is that His power and His wisdom must have came from somewhere else. And so perhaps they're saying the same thing the scribes from Jerusalem were saying. Right? When they said that the source of Jesus' power must be Satan and the demons. And as I began to read this story and read their reaction, in the face of all that they've seen, it made me think about those who, who study the cosmos. Right? They, they see the detail. They see the beauty. They see the order. They see the design. And they can't deny it. And yet what? They would rather say that it all came from nothing, which is absolute absurdity, rather than say that it came from the hand of God. And not only in our text today do they reject Jesus' claims, but they also try to disparage His name when they say that He is a carpenter, Mary's son. I want you to hear that. He is a carpenter, Mary's son. In Jewish culture, you are always the son of your father. But they don't say that he is the son of his father. They say he is a carpenter, Mary's son. They are insulting Jesus. And they are questioning the legitimacy of his heritage. That is what they are doing. In these small towns, you can be sure that rumors start easy and spread fast. And so you can be sure that when Jesus was born, those who were living at that time were probably there was rumblings. Well, who is Jesus really the father? Right? Uh, did she have this child out of wedlock? Who did she have him with? You can be sure that these rumors had started and they have continued until this day. And so not only are they disparaging Jesus, but they are disparaging his mother as well. And so they attack his upbringing as a reason why what he is saying could not be true. right? They took for granted the one that they felt familiar with. And isn't that something that we all do? Right? We take for granted what we are most familiar with. 
Right? This is a nation that takes God for granted, doesn't it? Right? We fail to appreciate God and what He has done for us and the grace He shows us, probably because we hear about Him so often in this nation. Right? On our money it says, In God we trust. Outside of state buildings, you have Ten Commandments. People grow up going to church in this country. People grow up in Christian schools in this country. And yet we fail to value Him. And instead we come up with excuses why we deny Him. If not by word, certainly we deny Him by our deeds. Right? This is a nation that has been privileged to freely say the name of Jesus. We are free in this nation to worship Him all the time that we want. And yet this nation, just like Nazareth, doesn't want anything to do with Christ. Right? The One who made heaven and earth, the sea and dry land, animals and human beings, the One who was rich yet became poor, the One who suffered a terrible death for the sins of His people as One who has been rejected by this nation. But thankfully for us, Our salvation does not depend on the belief or unbelief of this country. For Christ does not have a nation, but He has a people. A people who have been predestined to adoption according to the purpose and will of God. Who come from every nation to make up this spiritual kingdom of God now. Which means what? That we are in a land that is not our own. Right? We are, are pilgrims in this world. And yet knowing this, it ought to give the Christian comfort. It ought to give us comfort. For just as Jesus was among strangers because none of them believed in Him, we should not be shaken either right? when we are the only Christian in our family or when we are the only Christian at our job or when we are the only Christian in our group of friends we grew up with, or if we are the only Christian in our own small town, because you are not alone, so was Jesus. And what did Jesus do? Although no one around Him believed, He continued to do the work that He was sent here to do. We read in verse 6, And Jesus went about among the villages teaching. He continued His mission. He continued doing the will of God. And so we ought to learn from this that we are not to stop doing the will of God that He has called us to even if you are the only Christian amongst the group. We are to continue to live like a Christian. We are to continue to talk like a Christian. We are to continue to tell others about Christ like a Christian. Even if people don't want to hear it is what they need to hear. Now I'm not saying we are to shove it down anybody's throat but we are also not to shy away from proclaiming the name of Christ. Because if they don't hear it from your words and see it in your deeds, and if you're the only Christian amongst the group, where are they going to see it? Where are they going to hear it? From no one else. This leads us then into our second point this morning, which is offense taken. We see in verse 3 that the result of what Jesus was saying and doing is that the people of Nazareth took offense at him. And when it says they took offense, it literally means to become ensnared or trapped and killed by the springing of a trap. And so as one author puts it, to come into contact with Jesus, to recognize His Word and power is fatal 
for all who react with unbelief. And so in hearing what Jesus is saying, and in hearing the works that, he, that were being done by Jesus, these people hardened their hearts at Him. Right? They were offended at the boy they grew up with. The simple carpenter was going around teaching with wisdom never heard before, performing works never seen before. And instead of receiving Him with joy and gladness, when hearing Him proclaim and teach with divine authority, they instead reacted with shame and embarrassment. And this is what the inspired author of the psalm in Psalm 118 told us would occur. In verse 22, he says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And Matthew picks up on this and applies it to Christ in chapter 21, where he quotes Psalm 118, verse 22. And then in verse 43, right after that, As a result, he says this, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. You see, the Jewish people seeing Christ as a a flawed stone. Not one they wanted to boast about, right? He wasn't from wealth. He wasn't from prestige. Uh, He didn't have a father who was a king. He didn't own a bunch of land. He was a lowly carpenter. And so why in the world would they ever want to follow Him? Right? Why in the world would they ever want to be identified with Jesus? In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 2 and 3, speaking of Christ, we're told this. We read, For He grew up before Him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at Him, and no beauty that we should desire Him. He was despised, and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. And what a tragedy that is, isn't that, brothers and sisters? They couldn't stomach that Jesus had come from them. And this is then why Jesus responds in verse 4, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives, and in his own household. See, the very ones who knew him the best, who should have said, perhaps this is coming from God, the source of his ability is God, were not able to believe that any of this could actually be coming and working through Jesus Christ. And because of their embarrassment, we're actually told, or we're never told, that Jesus ever returns to Nazareth again. We're never told here that He returns to Nazareth again. And so we have to ask ourselves here this morning, right? is there anything about Christ that you are embarrassed about? Right? Is there anything about Christ that you are embarrassed about? Because there are many people who profess themselves Christians who are embarrassed about a lot of things about Christ. Right? They would be embarrassed about His view on marriage. They would be embarrassed about his view on homosexuality, wouldn't they? But we see what embarrassment brings to individuals and to towns and to nations. And that is God's judgment. It is God's judgment. God's judgment was seen in Jesus withholding His preaching and His works from these people. And even further, that judgment was seen in never returning to Nazareth to teach them again. 
And so if any one of us secretly holds on to some embarrassment about God's Word or about something that Jesus has said or done, if there's anything that we know to be true in the Scriptures that we don't want anyone to ask us about because we don't want to have to answer the question, then what we must immediately do is repent. We must immediately repent of that, realizing that the only one who has any right to be embarrassed in this relationship between God and men is God. We ought to consider how He is more embarrassed with us in our disbelief in our lack of obedience, in our lack of desire, in our laziness, in our impotency as believers, ought to consider why we will ever be unwilling to identify with Him and rather stand in awe and why He would ever be willing to identify Himself with us. And yet there's one further point I want us to see here in point two, and that is this, that there is a difference between giving offense and taking offense. Right? There's a difference between giving offense and taking offense. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 32, Give no offense to Jews and Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. Right? We are to do everything in our power not to give offense. Uh, Paul gives us the other example of not eating meat sacrificed to idols before a brother who is weak in conscience so as to not cause them to stumble. Right? That is a way in which we are to not give offense. Even though we lawfully can eat that meat, right? we don't use it to our advantage, but rather we look to the advantage of our neighbor and so we withhold from eating it in front of them. Right? So as to not give offense. Right? But the world oftentimes takes offense to a lot of things Christians say and do, don't they? But just because the world takes offense doesn't mean that we should stop doing it. Because they take offense at something that is to their advantage. We're not, what we're doing isn't to our own advantage, it's to their advantage. What we're doing is not putting a, a stumbling block before them because they sincerely don't want to stumble because their conscience is weak, but rather they don't want the Christian message because it stings their conscience. And just think about it, brothers and sisters. If we, if we conformed everything to the dictates of this world because they take offense at it, what would happen? There would be no more Christian message. right? We wouldn't be able to proclaim the gospel anymore. We wouldn't be able to meet in churches anymore. You wouldn't be able to raise your, your children in Christian homes anymore. You wouldn't be able to say the name of Christ in the public square anymore if the world had it their way. Right? If the world had it their way, there would be no such thing as true Christianity because true Christianity causes the world to take offense. But this is why we must understand that difference. Right? Paul was always sure to not give offense to the the brother who had a weak conscience. But Paul, but people took offense by what Paul said all the time. And yet Paul didn't stop proclaiming the Word of God. And so we must remember that distinction. This then takes us to our third and final point this morning, which is unbelief. Right? We're told starting in verse 5 that, and he could do no mighty work there except he laid hands on a few sick people and healed them and he marveled at their unbelief. Now, you have to understand that it's not as if uh, Jesus was uh, handcuffed and he wasn't able to heal anybody, but rather they refused him. 
And so as Sinclair Ferguson says, it would be inconsistent for the king to share the life and joy of the kingdom with those who reject him. For those few who didn't reject him and approached him, we're told that Jesus did heal them, right? But Jesus wasn't going to pour out the blessings of the kingdom upon a hard-hearted people. And at the core, their hard-heartedness sprung out from their unbelief. And isn't it ironic, brothers and sisters, that as we began our text today, they were astonished with Jesus. And now we end with Jesus being astonished with them. Right? We're told Jesus marveled at them. Right? He marveled at their unbelief. And He marveled at their unbelief because they rejected what was so obviously standing right before their eyes. Right? He, he marveled at their obstinance. He marveled that He could have lived with people for 30 years who were able to behold His perfect life. And now they hear His perfect doctrine and they see His perfect works which vindicate His words and proclaim His divinity and yet they still refuse to believe. And yet, brothers and sisters, if Jesus that very day would have came out of the sky, landed before them from the heavens, declaring this Word, and demonstrating these works, you know what? They still wouldn't have believed. Because unbelief can't be cured through showing men signs. Unbelief can't be cured through intelligent argumentation. Because unbelief reigns in people's hearts. And their hearts are unwilling to believe in God no matter the case. You see, the problem isn't the human eye. The problem is the human heart. But this should show us what a terrible thing the natural man's heart is. For it is the unbelieving heart that populates the pit of hell. Jesus says, you believe not, you are condemned already. This is why the author of Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12 says that the unregenerate heart is an evil unbelieving heart. Right? The heart that believes not in Christ is an evil heart. Which is why, brothers and sisters, we must constantly be examining our own heart for unbelief. For oftentimes we are prone to unbelief. Yes, we as Christians do suffer from unbelief. I can give you, you know, two examples. First, comes from the end of chapter 4. We remember as Jesus tells the disciples, let's get on the boat, let's cross over to the land of the Gerasenes. Right? That windstorm comes and what happens? Right? They freak out. They wake up Jesus. Oh, we're going to die. What are you doing sleeping? Right? They, they lacked belief, which is why Jesus said, have you still no belief? Do you still not believe? Right? They, they lacked belief. We can also look to the example of uh, Lazarus and his sisters. Right? When Jesus hears of Lazarus' death, he returns. And we read when he returns to where Lazarus has died, Martha runs out to Jesus. And she says to Jesus, Jesus, if only you were here, my brother would not have died. And what does Jesus tell her? He says, your brother will rise again. And she says, Jesus, yes, I know. He will rise again on that last day. And Jesus says, no, no, Martha, I am the resurrection. And she says, yes, Jesus, I believe you are the Christ. See, she didn't get it. She had faith that her brother would be raised on the last day. 
But she lacked faith that Jesus was able to raise him on that day. Even the, the best of saints, even the closest of friends to Jesus had bouts of unbelief. And many of us know how often our heart fails us in key moments, doesn't it? And so what we must do, brothers and sisters, to fight against that is to grow in faith and discernment. And yet we only grow through spiritual maturity. And you only gain spiritual maturity through immersing yourself in the Word of God. And immersing yourself in hearing the Word of God proclaimed. Right? And plunging yourselves into the depths of the Scriptures in order that you might discover the areas in which you are weak and the areas in which you lack and that you may go to God and ask that He might strengthen you and give you greater faith. And we ought to know that with greater faith comes the full riches of assurance. Right? It comes greater degree of enjoyment of all the benefits that we have through Christ when you have greater faith. And so it ought to drive us, shouldn't it, to Christ, to receive greater faith and be eager to drive out all unbelief. And yet we must be aware and not grow weary because this is a task that we all must engage in for the rest of our lives. right? Because our faith will not be perfected until Christ returns. We see in our text today, brothers and sisters, what unbelief can cause men to do. And that's make false judgments. Right? We can judge Christ in, incorrectly just like they judged Christ incorrectly because they judged Him according to His appearance. A poor carpenter. And they made excuses for why they rejected Him. Being foolish, not understanding that wisdom only comes through Christ. It is in Christ that wisdom is to be found. This is why we're told in James chapter 1, verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, right, ask of it of God and He gives generously without finding fault. And so I exhort all of you here today to, to run towards Christ, to flee towards Christ for wisdom. For the one who finds God in Christ finds eternal life. And when you find eternal life, never let it go. Never let it go. This is why when people hear of the the character of Christ and they hear of the the works that Christ has done and they, they still make excuses for why they reject Him, all it does is serve to magnify the guilt of their unbelief. Their excuses only serve to condemn them to a greater degree because they love evil instead of the care Compassion, love, forgiveness, mercy, and kindness of Christ. Right? Wasn't this the, the sin of the Israelites? Right? They had the presence of Christ. They had the blessings of Christ. They had the mercy of Christ. And yes, they, and yet they continually rejected Him. This is why Jesus says to us in Matthew's Gospel, in chapter 23 and verse 37. O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Today, people make all sorts of excuses for their unbelief, but their unbelief is caused by their unwillingness to believe. This is why the guilt of that sin falls upon their shoulders 
and their shoulders alone. This is why, brothers and sisters, we must continue to proclaim the gospel, to point people to Christ, that He is the only way. And then we must pray for them that God would convert the sinner's soul. But for those of us who have been given those willing spirits to believe, right, by grace and through faith, let us then walk and live just as we say we believe because faith is seen in its effects. Right? Faith is seen in its effects. This is why Jesus says in Matthew 7, verse 24, For those of you who hear My words and practice them, you are like the one who builds their home upon the rock. Right? And So let us be wise. Let us live in belief, brothers and sisters. I exhort you to, to walk by faith. Right? To pray by faith. To teach your children by faith. To drive your cars by faith. To go to work and work by faith knowing that it is those who have been justified by the blood of Christ and those alone who can live by faith. And so, brothers and sisters, live by faith. Please bow your heads with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word this day. We pray that You would apply what we learn to our hearts, that You would extinguish any unbelief that resides within us and grant to us, Father, greater belief in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that we might trust in His promises more and gain uh, the full riches of assurance. We ask all this in Christ's name we pray. Amen.